Well, we're really glad that you're here. What a great time of year. If you would, take out your Bibles and turn in them to the beginning of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the chair in front of you. You can take that Bible and turn in the back portion of it to page number 1, and you would find yourself at Matthew, the first chapter. What I find really fascinating is that the world's most significant news often fails to make headlines. And that's really been true for a long period of time. We could rewind back to two centuries ago. And in the Western world, the thing that was making all of the headlines were, was the march of Napoleon on Europe. It became a big issue in the States. It certainly was a big issue in Europe. And the Napoleonic Wars went on for a period of time. And during those years, people were just consumed with the news of the wars. How successful would Napoleon be? What's really interesting is during those years, when that was the big headline that everyone was interested in, there were babies being born. But the focus in the Western world was on battles, not on babies. And in 1809, which was somewhat mid-year in all the campaign, uh, between the Battle of Trafalgar, which happened in 1805, which is one of the major battles, and then the Battle of Waterloo, which occurred in 1815, about midway in 1809, a host of babies were born that many people consider to be heroes. In one month in 1809, Alfred Tennyson was born at Somersby, England. Same month, Oliver Wendell Holmes made his first appearance in Massachusetts. On exactly the same day, February the 12th, Charles Darwin made his debut at Shrewsbury, England, and Abraham Lincoln drew his very first breath in old Kentucky. The armies of Napoleon were the prominent things that people talked about, prominent not only in the newspapers but in the discussions of the day. But as has been said, it is the ideas of Darwin and Lincoln and the eloquence of Holmes and Tennyson that has actually shaped our world today. Now, if you could back up from that time, about 18 centuries, some 20 centuries from today, there was another baby born whose appearance occurred in very much a soap opera-like atmosphere, an atmosphere that was ripe for scandal, circumstances of innuendo that could readily breed all kinds of discussion. This birth happened in an insignificant little rural village called Nazareth. And it involved a young teenage girl, 13 or 14 years old, who was betrothed to be married and found herself pregnant. And thus arose questions, how did such a thing happen? How would her future husband respond to this information? We are doing a two-part series that we have entitled The Great Christmas Scandal. 
And last week, we looked at part number one. We looked at this great scandal from the standpoint of Mary, and that took us to Luke chapter one. Today, we want to look at the second part of the great Christmas scandal from the standpoint of Joseph, which brings us to Matthew chapter one. Now, in part one, When it comes to this new baby that was going to be born, the emphasis is on His majesty. Mary is told He will be the Son of the Most High. He will reign over Israel forever, and His kingdom will have no end. He is the Son of God. But as Jesus is discussed with Joseph, we find that the emphasis is different. It's on His mission. We're going to see that He is told that this baby Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now, as we're taking a look at the great Christmas scandal, we have said that there is a twofold goal that we have. One of our goals is that we want to have a fresh appreciation of things. Sometimes we're so familiar with the story that we don't really appreciate the depth of it. And so we want to have a fresh appreciation of the significant events of Christmas, and so we're going to look at this. The second goal that we have, though, is we are going to see a character quality that surfaces. We saw one last week. We're going to see one this week. And we believe these are character qualities that we see demonstrated in Mary and demonstrated in Joseph that God desires me to emulate in my life and for you to emulate in your life. It makes no difference how young you may be or how old you may be. So we have that twofold goal. If you have your Bibles open to the Gospel of Matthew in the first chapter, I would direct your attention to verse 18, and I'd like to read verses 18 to 25 and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, there's some incredible information in this section that we have just read. If you go back to verse 18, I want you to notice it talks about that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And these events happened before they, Mary and Joseph, came together. 
This introduces to us a custom that is very different than our own, the marriage customs of the day. And so we want to look at the Palestinian wedding customs of the day, and in their situation, there was a four-stage process that went on that related to the wedding ceremony. The first stage was the stage of promise. Parents in that day would arrange for the marriage of their children. It would be much like doing a business deal today. And usually, the couple would have no say in it. There would be no romance involved with it. Your parents would make the arrangement. They would make the deal. You would become married, and later on, there would come love. In fact, in Genesis chapter 24, we learn there that Isaac and Rebekah had never even seen each other before they were married. Can you imagine what that would be like today? They had never seen each other. And it tells us in Genesis 24 that Rebekah became Isaac's wife, and then he loved her. Very different approach than what we have today. How many of you who are parents wish you could turn the clock back just a little bit, you know? Yeah, I'd love to be able to get together with this family or that family, and we'd arrange for our kids to be married. Wow, that'd be great. How many of you who are younger are glad that time has marched on, you know? Yeah. The first service, a whole series of hands went flying up like that. Very different. But it would begin with the promise, and then the, the second stage would be the betrothal. You'd start with the promise, the arrangement, and then you would have the betrothal. And at this point, the marriage became binding. At this point, there would be a contract signed. There could very well be a ring. There very well could be simple vows. And there would be a dowry paid. The word in Hebrew was mohar, M-O-H-A-R. And those of you who have a lot of daughters think, man, wish we had that back again. Because what would happen is there would be a dowry paid, a mohar paid, by the future groom to the bride's family. And it could be cash. Uh, it might be animals. It also could be a commitment to serve. You might say, I will tend your flocks for so many years. Or I will work your fields for so many years for the hand of your daughter. See, the idea was is that when you were taking a bride, you were diminishing a family, and so you would need to pay the family for the diminishment that you were bringing by taking a bride. And so you would have this contract, maybe some vows, you would have the mohar, and legally at this point, they were married. They were husband and wife, yet they did not live together. In fact, it would take full divorcement to terminate the marriage, even in the betrothal period. Now, usually the betrothal period lasted for 12 months. During that time, both future bride and groom, even though they're legally married, have some preparation to do. During that 12 months, the bride would gather her wardrobe. I had three daughters. I saw a lot of gathering of wardrobe that went on on a regular basis. 
But this was a special gathering that would happen during that 12-month period. The bride would gather her wardrobe. And the groom would also be busy because he had to prepare the living accommodations for his new bride. See, they were both going to be leaving the living situation with their parents, and so he would take his 12 months to get everything together, to get the living accommodations set up. And then you had the third stage, which would be the ceremony stage. And in the ceremony stage, what would happen is the groom and his attendants would come over to the bride's house. And then they would go from there back to the groom's house. And all of that was part of the ceremony. And then that led us to the fourth stage, which is the celebration stage or the feast stage. And that could go on for days and even sometimes for weeks. So you see that they did things differently then. And when we are in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we need to just understand the flow of things. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Now, I want to remind you that Mary was 13, 14 years old, and Joseph was likely 17, 18 years old. And so they're in the betrothal period, and what ends up happening? Your betrothed bride is pregnant. And I want you to notice verse 19. It says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wishing to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, just stop for a moment and realize what's going on here. He sees his wife-to-be, she's pregnant. What is his response? I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to divorce her. Now, apparently, Mary wisely decided not to try to give a full explanation of what was going on. I mean, can you imagine how that would have worked, knowing the human propensity to justify Joseph, I know we're in the betrothal period and, uh, you know, we haven't come together yet. But I just want you to understand, this is what happened. You see, this angel came by. And the angel told me that I was going to get pregnant and I was going to have the Son of the Most High. And then somehow, I don't know, the Spirit of God just mysteriously overshadowed me and voila! That's how it happened. She doesn't do that. She doesn't go down that highway because we all know that's not going to (laughs) wash. He's not going to buy that one. Well, you look again at verse 19. Joseph is described. He's her husband legally, and he's a righteous man. He knew it was morally wrong to proceed with a marriage that had been violated, and there was obvious evidence of infidelity. That existed. And he knew that in Deuteronomy 24, it says that if you find uncleanness in this woman, that you are to give to her a bill of divorcement. That is the right thing to do. And so he didn't want to fear God's displeasure. I mean, he knew he wasn't the father, he knew she was pregnant. So he wanted to do the right thing. And the right thing would be that he would give to her divorce papers. 
But the usual tact, by the way, when you would do that is, here's the way that you would do that. If there had been a violation in this betrothal period, you would take the person with you down to the judges at the city gate, and you would hold a public hearing. And it would be a public forum where all of this would come out publicly. But notice it says in verse 19 that Joseph did not want to disgrace her. And again, knowing the culture of the day, you would have to say, well, what about his disgrace? I mean, his parents had made this arrangement with this young girl, and the people in the village would know this arrangement had been made, and now it would be coming out, leaking out. What about the disgrace that he would have to undergo? But he didn't want to disgrace her. His first concern was for her needs, which, by the way, is a hint at the character quality that I believe God wants us to emulate, that we can learn from this 17, 18-year-old boy. So he planned to send her away, to put her away. It's just, it's just lingo in the, in the original for divorce her. He planned to divorce her secretly. We'll have a private procedure. There'll be no fanfare rather than some harsh condemnation at a public scandal. And so that's the decision that he made. That's the plan that he made. But you'll notice that God steps in to clarify things. Verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Interesting phrase to take Mary as your wife. For the child has been conceived in her, who has been conceived in her, is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What does he say to him? Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Why would he be afraid? Well, one reason would likely be that he didn't want to displease God. He was a righteous man. He wanted to do what was right. And yet to take her as his wife, whoa, that might not make God happy. But the Lord, through the angel, says, no, no, no. This child that has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Robert Gramacki suggests another possible reason that the angel said to him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And he says, would Joseph dare to touch sexually one who had been overshadowed by God? Would he view her as so pure and delicate as to not be tarnished by his own sexual passion? He had to be told that a normal marital union, including sexual intercourse between husband and wife, could be experienced by him. Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. And it goes on to say, you shall call him. As the legal father, it was his right to call him and name him. You shall call him Jesus. You remember from last week what the word Jesus means, the name Jesus. We said it's a very common name, just about like Jim or Bob in our culture. 
It means the Lord is salvation. The Lord saves. That's the name you shall give to him. Why? Because it is he who is going to do something. And we have unpacking for Joseph here some of his mission. It is he who will save his people from their sins. This boy is born to die. This boy is going to die as a substitute to deliver us from our own guilt and sin and the consequences of it. This boy is going to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. And by the way, that is all part of the eternal plan of God. It's pointed out for us in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 700 years before, seven centuries before, in the book of Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We talked a little bit last time about the theological discussions about the virgin birth, or more properly, the virgin conception. And some have disputed it. Some have said it's foolish to even believe in such a thing. And part of the dispute involves the word in Hebrew in the Old Testament for virgin, which is the word Alma, A-L-M-A-H. Alma can actually be translated with one of two terms. It could mean a young woman or it could mean a virgin. And so some would go back and say, how in the world, why would you ever choose to translate it virgin? It should be translated young woman. A young woman is going to conceive. It doesn't really mean what it's claiming to mean. But all of that breaks down when you come to the New Testament because in the New Testament, the word in Greek here for virgin is the word parthenos, P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S. And the word parthenos can only be translated with one word in English, and that is our word virgin. It only has one meaning, just like the word virgin does in English. And so it is very clear that she was a virgin. In fact, it's always been clear. The translators understood it. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done two and a half centuries before Jesus appeared on the scene, when it came in the book of Isaiah to that word Alma, in Hebrew, they translated it in the Greek translation Parthenos, because they understood that was the intent of the Hebrew writer. She was a virgin. The text makes it abundantly clear. I mean, we learn it from verse 18, right? She'd been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. She is called a Parthenos, very, very clearly in verse 23. And then in verse 25 it says, He kept her a Parthenos until she gave birth to a son. She indeed was a virgin. You shall name him Jesus. 
His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is going to be the one who would come to the planet to be the sacrifice, to be the substitute. And he could be the substitute for our sins and the sins of the whole world because he was also deity. That's why his sacrifice was sufficient for all of us. Now, that's a lot of information coming at somebody in a dream. It's interesting to me to see Joseph's response. Verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife. See how he broke the normal customs of the day? He moved right into that ceremony time and then taking her back to his house. He moved quickly and began to provide and care for her because that would best protect her reputation. Not everyone would yet know that she was pregnant. And then we have a little anecdote thrown in in verse 25. It says, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. I don't know how long that was exactly, six to eight months. There was no sexual relationship between Joseph and Mary until she gave birth to a son. That little uh, idea there of until, what does that imply? After she gave birth to a son, of course, they consummated their marriage in the marriage act together. In fact, we learn from Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, that there were multiple brothers and sisters who were born to Mary and Joseph, but Mary and Joseph did not come together until she had given birth to Jesus. Now, I said we really have a couple of goals. Remember why we're doing this. One is that we would have a fresh appreciation, a deeper appreciation of what the Christmas story is all about. But a second purpose we have, second goal we have, is to look at a character quality that I believe that God desires for me to emulate and for you to emulate. And, and I want to say it doesn't make any difference how old you are. This is a character quality that should be emulated by those who are very young and even for those of us who are older. You remember the character quality we saw in Mary last week? We saw her display a servant heart marked by a willingness to submit to the will of God. She is told this information from God, and her response is pointing to herself, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. This is a 13, 14-year-old girl. She says to God, Be it done according to your word, God. Really what she was saying is, I'm willing to accept whatever God wants me to have in my life. Is that the open-armed response that you have to him? Whatever you want to send my way, I'm willing to accept it. I have a servant heart with a willingness to submit to the will of God. Joseph displays a similar yet a different characteristic quality. We see in Joseph a servant heart marked particularly by a willingness to put others ahead of himself. Think about what he was doing. Who is he thinking about? 
Was he thinking about his needs or her needs? He really was saying to Mary, your needs are more important than my needs. It's not that I don't have them, but yours are more important to me than my own. And you think you can't learn from teenagers. And I look at Joseph, 17, 18 years old, and I have to ask myself the question, is that a quality of my own heart, a serving servant heart, a willingness to put others ahead of myself? Is that a characteristic of, of my life? to put other people ahead of myself, even when it's a hard thing to do, even when it's going to cost me something? It's a great question to ask. Those of us who are, who are dads and husbands might ask that question. Do I have a servant heart, a willingness to put others' needs ahead of myself? When you come home, what are you really thinking about? Are you thinking about your own needs. I, I want to break. I've been working hard. I, I want to read the paper. I want to read the mail. I, uh, I, I want to go hit a few balls. Maybe you come home to a wife who also was working that day. Or maybe she was home with the children. And her need is to have someone to listen to her. Or maybe your kids. I remember when the kids were little and you would come home as a as a father, and you'd have this little stampede that would come your direction. And, and that was a cool thing, you know, but at the same time you're thinking, oh my goodness, what does this mean for the next, you know, hour of my time? Because there's some things I would like to do. Do we have a servant heart marked by a willingness to put others ahead of ourselves? And maybe you have brothers or sisters living you with, with you at home. Do you have the same kind of commitment that Joseph had to put other people's needs ahead of your own? Maybe you have roommates with which you live. You see, this character trait that we see in Joseph is one that God wanted us to learn from. If you want to keep your finger in Matthew, you can turn with me to the book of Philippians, deeper into the New Testament. You get Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go to Philippians chapter 2. The General Electric Power Company right there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Powerful books. But I want you to notice what is said about this whole idea, this whole concept of having a servant heart marked by a willingness to put others ahead of yourself by what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. This is directed at me, by the way, and it's directed at you, whether you're young or whether you're old. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Wow! looking around, thinking everyone else here is more important than me. 
Do not, verse 4, merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Don't just get into the self-focus rut. Rather, have a servant heart that is willing to put others ahead of yourself. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. I wonder what the world would look like if we actually did that one. See, this is a, is, a, is a key lesson that God has for us because it's interesting. Just as we saw with Mary, the same character quality she demonstrated was actually demonstrated in, remember, Jesus himself. And the same thing is true here because in the very next verse, what does it say? Have this attitude that I've just described in verses 3 and 4 in yourselves it's the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. The same character quality was demonstrated by Jesus. Because you see, he had a servant heart. He had a willingness to put other people ahead of himself. He didn't come down to this planet for his personal benefit. He came down to this planet because of you and because of me. Jesus came saying, your needs more important than my needs. And I believe that, that God has woven into the Christmas story lessons that he wants us to learn. And Joseph displayed a servant heart with a willingness to put others ahead of himself. And that's part of what we should carry away from Christmas. A wonderful story, but great truth also. So I believe each of us must choose whether, A, this is just simply a story that we get to read about, or whether, B, it is a real-life example of how we are to live our life. And I believe it is the latter. Who would have ever thought God would design it so that you and I would learn from a 13, 14-year-old girl and a 17, 18-year-old boy. A lot of times you come to this kind of year, type of year, and you go, I don't know what I'm going to get them. I don't know what gift I could give them. I'll tell you, here's one gift that you can give other people, and it's not going to cost you dollars but it'll cost you a little bit of yourself, and that is that you give them the gift of a servant heart that is willing to put their needs ahead of yourself. I believe that Christmas and the full significance of it is often overlooked by us. And remember, some of the most significant things that happen often fail to make the headlines in the news of the day. I want to read to you some of the thoughts put together by Max Lucado as he surveys the Christmas scene. He writes, the, the noise and the bustle began earlier than usual in Bethlehem. As night gave way to dawn, people were already on the streets. 
Vendors were positioning themselves on the corners of the most heavily traveled avenues. Store owners were unlocking the doors to their shops. The owner of the inn had awakened earlier than most in the town. After all, the inn was full and all the beds taken. Every available mat or blanket had been put to use. Soon, all the customers would be stirring and there would be a lot of work to do. One's imagination is kindled thinking about the conversation of the innkeeper and his family at the breakfast table. Did anyone mention the arrival of the young couple the night before? Did anyone ask about their welfare? Did anyone comment on the pregnancy of the girl who had been riding on the donkey? Perhaps. Perhaps someone raised the subject, but at best it was raised, not deeply discussed. There was nothing that novel about this young couple. They were possibly one of several families turned away that night. Besides, who had time to talk about them when there was so much excitement in the air? Uh, Augustus, I mean, he did, a, he did the economy of Bethlehem an incredible favor when he decreed that a census should be taken. Who could remember when such commerce had hit the village? No, it's doubtful that anyone mentioned the couple's arrival or wondered about the condition of the girl. They were too busy. The day was upon them. The morning's chores had to be done. There was too much to do to imagine that the impossible had occurred. God had entered the world as a baby. Yet, if someone were to chance upon the sheep stable on the outskirts of the village that morning, a peculiar scene they would behold. The stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard because of the animals that would be trampling on it, and the hay scarce. Cobwebs cling to the ceiling, and a little mouse scurries across the dirt floor. A more lowly place of birth could not exist. Wide awake is Mary. My, how young she looks. Her head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain she had endured in childbirth had been eclipsed by wonder. She looks into the face of the baby, her son, her Lord, His Majesty. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what He is doing is a teenage girl in a smelly stable. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager in the presence of a young carpenter. 
She touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? This baby had superintended the universe. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. And worshiping angels had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. Meanwhile, the city hums. The merchants are unaware that God had visited their planet. The innkeeper would never believe that he had just sent God into the cold. And the people would scoff at anyone who told them the Messiah lay in the arms of a teenager on the outskirts of the village. They were all too busy to consider the possibility. Those who missed his majesty's arrival that night missed it not because of evil acts or malice. No, they missed it because they simply weren't looking. Little has changed in 2,000 years, hasn't it? You know, when Joseph heard about the coming of the baby, the focus of the information he received related to his mission. It related to his first coming. He is coming to bring a sacrifice, Joseph was told. And Joseph never lived to see Jesus on the cross. When Mary received information about the baby Jesus, it was focused more on His majesty, more on His second coming. He will one day reign on the throne of David. And Mary never lived to see Jesus reign in glory. But men and women, <laughs> it is going to happen. One day, this one who came to die is going to come and reign. And every knee will bow before him and every eye is going to see that he is the king of the universe. He is the one who is worthy of being worshipped. He is the one who is worthy of being emulated. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you so much for a book like this that tells so grand a story and that we can learn from it. And Lord, what a wonderful thing to have someone like Mary and someone like Joseph at such a young age who is able to show us what a servant heart was all about, being willing to accept whatever you want to bring in our life, submitting to your will, and being willing to put other people ahead of ourself. And I would pray that you would continue to make us into those kind of people because it really means ultimately that we're emulating the one who bled and died for us. Because he was a servant 
who is willing to submit to the will of God. And he was a servant who was willing to put our needs ahead of his own. And as we celebrate this season, may we remember, may we remember that this baby is coming back in full power and full glory. And may we realize that the most consistent thing we can do is to live our life, be it in our family, on our job, at school, consistent with the belief that He could appear for us at any time. We thank You for such a great Savior. We thank You for such an incredibly great God. And we thank You for the opportunity that we have to honor You with our life, and to honor you with our worship. And we pray these things in his great and mighty and precious name. Amen.